Hello, this is your host, Paul Harvey at Life, Passion and Business. I realise I put this at the end of the programme most of the time. And I also realise I don't often listen to the end of podcasts. So I thought about it, i tell you here before we get started. So the first thing is this podcast is not supported in any way. We have no sponsorship. So if you would like to support us, do check out the Buy Me A Coffee link on this podcast app. And you also find it at the website. Now, also, if you are interested in the five questions and would like to answer them yourself, do check out the resources tab at the website because the five questions is available as a workbook and an ebook. And if you want to know why that's important, check out the end of the podcast or go and check out the resources tab at the website. That's enough for me. Let's get on with the program. My name is Paul Harvey, and you are listening to Life, Passion and Business, a podcast born out of my desire to find greater meaning in life at the time when I thought there was none. Since that day, I have spoken to hundreds of people, and what I have discovered is that our story is everything, because what we do, feel or experience is based on the stories that we tell ourselves. It's time to explore what it means to live a good life. How do we make this experience better? And more importantly, how do we lead the world to a better place? There is no permanent success just around the corner. And I think that's the risk is that often we look at it as if there is. It's like, well, if I can just, if I can just do get through this busy period, um, even if it means that I'm not going to exercise or I'm not going to spend time with my family and whatever, if I can just get around the next corner, then everything will be great. And of course, that's that's not the case. It's not how it works. You know, you know yourself. Could you remove yourself from your business or life for six weeks while you take a road trip with the family? That is about the ability to be organized and create processes that systemize what you do so that others could do it for you. My guest on the program was a natural entrepreneur. As a child of 10, he was always making stuff and selling it. And he'd come from a family where business and selling was just normal. Alexis Kingsbury was born in Nottingham in the UK. He was a clever child and was seen as the geek, the one with a hand up in class all the time. The point is he was driven to learn and had a passion for learning, but his primary interest was business. The question was, how do you make them grow? After taking business studies at advanced level at school, he went on to Loughborough University to study management science. And he was still looking for the answer to that question. How do you grow a business past yourself? It was only after leaving university that he found the answer to that question as he went into management consultancy and got to experience firsthand what the inside of a scaled business looks like. It's funny because he was terrified in his first day on the new job, a new client, and he was able to save them thousands within just 10 minutes. You see, what he discovered is that scaling a business is about people and systems. Our conversation is about his ability to break down a process and create systems. He discovered what came to him with ease was difficult for others. Ultimately, he left the consultancy to start a business with a partner and they created Air Manual and SpiderGap. Both are software services that support business to grow and scale. Over the last 15 years, Alex has worked with hundreds of business leaders to save them thousands of hours of their time each year, helping them work more effectively and unlock their business growth. As a speaker and a guest on podcasts like this, he's been sharing his findings and he's made a huge impact to so many businesses. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Alexis Kingsbury. 
what is the story for you? I know you're in the UK. I can hear your voice. You don't, you, you sound like an Englishman to me. <laughs> yeah, so I am. Uh, and uh, it's where I was born, born and raised uh, in, uh, in Nottinghamshire uh, in the UK. Um, I was always uh, an entrepreneurial kid, like as long as I can remember going right back to, I think even like eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, uh, creating newsletters and selling them door to door and uh, sweeping drives and washing cars and all this kind of stuff. Um, all I did, you know, I just, I suppose I always liked making things. I was really passionate about just building things. I was always the person, you know, I was always the child that you could just give a load of lemonade, empty lemonade bottles and toilet roll tubes and come back after an hour and I might have built a city or a, or a space rocket or something. But the difference um, is you had the urge to sell them. That's the weird bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did, uh, that's, that's true. It's like, huh, what do I do with this stuff? Right, sell it. Um, yeah, that's true. I, uh, that side, I suppose my, both my parents were um, entrepreneurial and uh, and started their own businesses um, or at least uh, or, or were part of uh, early stage businesses that they then grew. And so, yeah, so I was kind of surrounded by that. And then uh, even when then my uh, sort of stepdad came along and um, my family picture changed that meant that was a thing. Um, you know, he owned eight, I think it was eight pharmacies in in Nottinghamshire. So as a result, like even when an additional parent kind of entered my life, uh, still entrepreneurship and, and that kind of mindset was kind of brought around me. So, um, so yeah, it's like I've always had that that passion for building things and turning it into entrepreneurial stuff. You know, I, I wonder though, I know I, 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 this is going to be me making some social political point here, but I do wonder if, if the Midlands is more entrepreneurial because, you know, of, of, if in my generation, you know, the, the Midlands was suffered hugely in the 70s and 80s of like literally complete economic collapse because of industry moved out and finding a job, there weren't any. So you had to go and make one. So I wonder if that's why entrepreneurship was so popular in that part of the world. Yeah, quite quite possibly. I think um uh you know for, for my mum's side, like she uh she worked at uh, Boots, which is a you know not a big Nottingham uh, mm. firm and creation, um, which has sort of outlasted uh, Rally, which is one of the other big ones at the time, but UK manufacturing has uh, suffered and so it's kind of been a lesser uh, less a big piece of, of mm. U- UK history now uh, than uh, than perhaps Boots has become. But um, yeah, she you know she worked essentially as a pharmacist within Boots and then became sort of store managers and so on. And 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 I think um, <laughs> in fact I think the timeline means that she ended up working for my now stepfather uh, <laughs> and, and working for one of his shops before uh, before then starting her own business and then later ending up marrying him. So um, oh. is there a, a, a slightly a slightly wiggly zigzaggy? There's some stories timeline. in this. There's some stories in there somewhere for <laughs> someone else's journey. I'm sure. I'm exactly sure. right. So I'll, I'll leave. I'll leave that. <laughs> tell that story. But I think um, yeah, certainly the that entrepreneurial nature. I think I, I I'd agree. I see a lot of it around. Mm. But I think you know where wherever you are in the country or in the world, you know, in fact there are, you know parts. Uh, I've come across plenty of countries where you suddenly get in, insight into this incredible entrepreneurial mindset as being more core to particular countries and so on. But I think it ultimately, it does come down for those those individuals, whether they're getting that directly around them from the people that they look up to. And so I can't speak to how much it impacted me, 
You know, part of me likes to think that I'd have been entrepreneurial anyway and that there was a DNA aspect and so on, but there's no way I can pull that apart and there's no way that I can um, uh, uh, defend the fact that I had entrepreneurs around me. No, <laughs> so, indeed. indeed. I, it's just, a, just an interesting ex, 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 exploration of the idea. So where did, obviously, you grew up and you, did you go to college? Did, did you get, did, was there a passion to do something with your life? Um outside yeah. of model making <laughs> yeah, yeah so I guess it, it was also I always had a bit of a weird feeling about my career and growth and education because you know I was I was quite good in an educational setting but not um but but struggled for different reasons more social reasons rather mm. than the academic like the academic side was fine and if anything sometimes I'd get bored and frustrated and I think perhaps the way that sometimes that would show up uh, didn't serve me and so um yeah, I, I didn't. There were lots of things about school that I didn't enjoy, but imagined that as I moved up through academia, that there would be more people who loved learning, mm. and therefore I'd be surrounded by like-minded mm. people. That as a result, you know, wouldn't look at me as being like, "Oh, why does he keep putting his hand up?" You know, um, you know, what a what a complete geek. And instead, I'd eventually be surrounded by people who loved learning and would see that as a good thing. So. Um, but then on the flip side, I always thought, well, I want to create an entrepreneurial ventures. But I think the thing that meant that I did go down the academic route initially was because I kept on starting businesses, uh, you know, including like, you know, washing cars and so on, uh, but also websites. And I could never scale them beyond me. I could never get like I'd, I'd get some initial traction and I'd end up busy and couldn't really see how I could grow it any further. And I would often then decide, oh, well, the problem is the product. Like, you know, I need to pick a more scalable product. You know, I'm doing washing cars, but that can't scale because it requires me. Therefore, I'll go on something else. And, you know, whether it's selling newspapers or creating a, a, a PlayStation website or selling headsets or building computers, whatever it was, I kept on changing because I thought maybe that would be the answer. In subsequent life, I've learned that it wasn't anything to do with the product or service that I was offering and entirely about the way I was approaching the business. Um, so I studied business studies at A-level. I uh, studied, went to study management science at Loughborough University mm. uh, with, a, with the aim of kind of learning deep into to business, how to make them grow and scale, and still really didn't feel like I got that. I kind of got some really useful, interesting ideas from from those um but really i am uh, curious management mm, science what what yeah. is that what is that that's a nice title but you know it's like i, I mean I, when i first started work the idea of management was do what you bloody told that's that was my management, <laughs> management i experienced so i, I mean <laughs> yeah so i suppose it's uh, uh, i mean it is the science of management in the sense that it's generally how to uh, most of it was how can you manage using um, models and, uh, and you know, find either financial or numerical modeling. So, mm -hmm. for example, if we want to run a call center and we've got, uh, in fact, this was a situation I um, ended up being in on my both placement year and my summer job. I worked for DHL in their contact centers for a while as their uh, IT support mm -hmm. uh, in their IT support function and then in a variety of different areas. So there you'd have a challenge of like you've got two call centers, total of 600 call agents. You want to make sure that you're responding to calls within uh, the 85% of calls within 20 seconds. As a result, how many staff do you need at any one time? Mm -hmm. And 
there's a whole science around how you calculate that and how you um, adapt to co the call volumes throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the year, um, so that you can provide that as efficiently as possible. They seem to have um, been those stats, don't they, nowadays? Because every time I phone everyone out, they say, you, your, your call time will be five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it, it depends on very much who you call so, uh, and, and, and also what you're calling for. I suspect if you're calling to make a booking and hand over money, you'll find that the um, the the speed of picking up that call is a lot faster. <laughs> <laughs> so typically it's, um, yeah, it's there's other businesses where you're just a cost. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then, yeah, it's, it's a lot slower. But, you know, th those sorts of things. So, you know, you know, I've studied things like inventory management and um, forecasting and pricing mm. and all those sorts of things. And, and then also had some optional modules around marketing and uh, corporate finance. And it does sound and fascinating. I mean, it's, it's interesting. As long as long as the stuff is is actually you know, progressive, that's the thing about these things. It's like when, when you know, it's like... Um, I, I do worry about some of these things don't change. <laughs> the world changes. We move on. You know, different styles have to come forward. And yet they're still teaching the same kind of economics which in the world, which to me, I mean, there was a, I think some time ago, there was some students went on strike and said about, you're teaching us economics. This doesn't work. We can see it's not working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think um, the thing that I would like to have seen more from what I was doing there is probably two things. One would have been um, encouraging more of a, a love of the learning and mm. uh, and so on. I think that there was much too much emphasis um, on here's the standard textbook. If you want an A, uh, you know, sorry, if you want a first, you need to demonstrate that you've read around the subject. Um, but the what they meant by that was that you've read other books that in many cases are um cited by the main textbook and in fact i found a little cheat code for that is whenever you're writing an essay or doing some coursework rather than quote the main textbook because you know they, they'll give you a lot of, okay well done um better than that is quote the quote that is from the main textbook so if the main textbook says as was found in this other book Go, quote that book yeah. yeah and so you quote that one and so you can read one book and suddenly you're able to cite a hundred different texts. Brilliant. And as a result, get a first as I did. See, even now, even then, knowing what you do now, even yeah. then you were finding shortcuts for doing it. Correct. Interesting. Well, we'll Correct. get to what we'll get to what you do in a moment. So people yeah. can see the see the synergy of that one. Indeed. And I think, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think you're right that, you know, essentially I was bringing that skill set. And I think it's a shame that um, I didn't really feel nurtured into actually loving the learning mm. and exploring it in different ways but but i think what would have helped me do that is if there'd been another piece which was experimentation yeah and i felt like there wasn't enough of that and to the extent that what i did was start little businesses while i was at uni so you know i i, I did start a business where i was like building computers and trying to set and selling them to local businesses and i did start a business where i was providing it support um, to students and uh, yeah. uh, that were off campus and therefore uh, needed to pay for things like having their Wi-Fi fixed and all these sorts of things. Um, and so, um, yeah, that was kind of some of the things that I tried to fill in the gaps there, um, but still never really felt like I learned how do you grow, how do you grow the business past yourself? Um, and, you know, I'd level that 
uh, squarely at my door. It's not that the, you know, it's not that education had a duty to provide that for me, but I just couldn't, couldn't see. No, the, but the clue, isn't it? The clue is the fact that we can't do these things on our own. Indeed, and so it was only really once when I then left university, um, became a management consultant uh, at PA Consulting based in London, um, working with lots of large companies like Honda and AstraZeneca and UK government and BP and so on, that suddenly the penny sort of dropped. And it's really embarrassing because I think it's so obvious when I then say it, which is that I was working in these businesses, seeing how they were producing, you know, incredible scale. And I was there to help them be more efficient in it. And I was looking at it going, oh, well, I see how they're operating at scale. It's people and processes. It's it's that. It's that you've got a load of people in. And in some cases, incredibly talented people. In many cases, just normal average people. <laughs> you know, it didn't it didn't even need to be A players but that they were, they'd worked out what works. And as a result, we're just doing it at scale with lots of people and processes following, and training to yeah. make sure it's done a particular Following way. the system, absolutely. Exactly right. And and so it was only then that I was like, ah, okay, I get what I've been doing wrong. Every single time I've been getting busy and then it, get, and then it all sticks with me. And that I, you know, I end up so busy that I can't do any marketing or sales and I'm spending all my time delivering. And as a result, I'm not able to grow the business. Whereas... I now look back and say, actually, even even the 12 year old me that was washing cars probably could have found a way to get friends from school washing cars <laughs> and, and I'd be taking a cut. One of my podcast guests, she was employing, she was like 14 and she took on four or five different paper rounds and she was employing older, older kids than her to do the paper rounds. Yeah, she's a lot smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> here's the thing like on on the one hand i look at that and go yeah i feel um you know sort of almost uh uh semi-embarrassment i mean i don't but like it's almost like i might feel embarrassed that like why did it take me so long and you know someone else can get there and they were doing it 14 and creating this and i know i know people who have left school and university and created seven figure businesses by the age that they're 17 right so it's like it is possible and therefore you could look at it and go okay well embarrassed by this and yet i work with so many business owners now that are falling into exactly the same trap of course we all bang our heads against we all bang our heads against the same wall until we're prepared to listen (laughs) indeed indeed. but also it's um it's a cycle we repeat you know it's uh, i know business owners who have managed to free themselves in the early days and and hire a small team but then get stuck again and can't see a way out and you know it's like well (laughs) <laughs> do what you did again there it's like oh i can't well, the, the challenge of that isn't it the challenge of that though is i mean all right we're getting into detail here but the, the challenge of it is is that people start a business for two reasons one is that they want to earn money of course mm-hmm. but the other one is they like doing the thing they're doing and then the idea of bringing someone else in to do what they love doing doesn't mm-hmm. fit it's like I, but I, I but i'd lose the bit i'd like to enjoy doing and that's the point. The progression takes the further and further away from what the joy of when they started the thing is. Yeah, it's a it's a hard balance. I think yeah. that um, I think that that's true in a lot of cases. Although for the vast majority, that's not the like they they end up doing a lot of admin and stuff that isn't the joy, right? No. Um, no. And and so I think that. Uh, we have to be careful of where that's an excuse and said, oh, no, but, you know, I like doing this stuff. And you go, really, you like like 
filling in the information mm. that goes in the invoice and that, mm. and you like doing this and you like doing that. It's like, oh, well, not those things, but like, um and i think it's it's that balance but also it's like it, let's say that um you know in the uh, uh, i'm in the software industry so of course it's not uncommon that one or more of the founders of a software company loves coding and you're absolutely right as you grow the business you're essentially pulling yourself further away from actually doing some of the coding but it it is possible to still be doing some and it is possible to be doing the design if that's the thing that you're still interested in. The product. Of course, like, of course, it, it's always possible to do it. Yeah. It's just that in their mindset, they don't see that. They don't see the fact that by expanding, it will, it will change. And it's about mm. that progression and there's a resistance to progression. Founder syndrome is such a, such a powerful force keeping mm. things down. It's really amazing. It's really amazing how powerful that can be. Yeah. But going back to you and the journey that you had, okay, so you, you're a business, you're, you're now a business consultant, which is great, and you're obviously earning some money out of that one and, and, look, and getting the chance to rub shoulders with some very, very powerful people by the sounds of it. Yeah. What happened from there on in? Yeah, so I was loving that. And and in fact, you know, if, uh, it's funny, I remember my very first day on my first client-facing um, project, and I was terrified. I remember... I knew because I'd seen the proposal, I knew that I'd been sold in at uh, uh, just over a thousand pounds a day. And bear in mind that this was my, you know, I was, I was essentially relatively fresh out of university. Yes, I'd had some jobs and been working, done some work at DHL, run my own businesses and so on. So in theory, I wasn't a normal graduate. But in practice, it felt very. very yeah, you got to like you got to you got to live up to that, haven't you? Really, you got to go exactly. back there so you know what you're talking about. <laughs> but and also, I had this feeling of if I don't deliver a thousand pounds of value today, I've got to deliver two thousand tomorrow, right? And and so um, and I remember uh, like coming to the office terrified, like how can I possibly add a thousand pounds a day of value? And I remember I was, uh, I was asked to sit down with this um, member of this particular, uh, as part of a, a, a UK government um, agency or, or department. And I was asked to basically you know, like watch what they did and document it as a process and just capture it as a series of steps. And I knew how to do that. And the idea, of course, is that we then are going to improve this process. Um, and the expectation wasn't particularly that I would do that live. It's I would capture what's happening. And then as part of a brainstorming exercise and working with the team would then improve that. So that's kind of fine. So I was like, okay, relax, a bit more relaxed. Anyway, I start watching this person, what they're doing, and they're working in this spreadsheet and they start like typing in this, uh, so they, yeah, they're typing in a formula and then they move to the next cell and they type in the formula again, move to the next cell and type in the formula again. And it's like, huh, what, why are you doing that? Why don't you just copy it down? And they went, oh, no, because the formula needs to be different for each of the rows. I said, but you can use copy cells. Like, just drag it like this. And, like, the moment of just, like, you could see the realisation in their head that they had been doing that and it was taking them two or three hours a day and they'd been doing that for the last six months or a year or whatever. There's your thousand pounds. Exactly. And in five <laughs> minutes, I, you know, I just, like, oh, there you go. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. And I remember going to lunch and just being like, Oh, well, that's that's all fine then. <laughs> I what I was doing the afternoon. Um, and so it was really interesting kind of learning that little things, little skills, little insights could suddenly make huge changes in terms of efficiency and ways of working and so on. And, and I think it's that that really I started to kind of fall in love with the process of business, you know, loving that process of 
the build again it was like back to lemonade bottles and toilet roll tubes it was I love, how do i build what's going on here i love um, that phrase i heard on that on that thing that's little hinges swing big doors mm, yeah i love that yeah yeah absolutely and it's it was that it was realizing how huge change could happen and that in that example literally saving someone three hours a day um for you know forever um is a is a pretty big deal um you know saving someone yeah 15 hours a week like you know, that's, that's basically near, nearly being able to hire an, uh, another half of a person mm. um using some very little changes and of course over the course of that first week there were multiple other things so you suddenly go well i've saved t- probably two or three full-time equivalent employees worth of work with little changes and process improvements here and there um, and that's before you get into and actually what does this what do the changes mean for the customer yeah in terms of the the results yeah, that they yeah, get yeah, yeah. once it moves yeah. to our sales if it's <clears> in a sales area where it's like conversions like the impact can be huge and is um uh, and is compounding you know if you make a little improvement to, to one part of the process and a little bit of improvement here a little improvement here combined they end up uh, much bigger mm. um some of the parts it's um i remember attending an event about eight years ago where they talked about how you know if you look at your sales process as being you know number of leads you capture um percentage of those that then um uh that, that then sort of subscribe to some kind of lead or, or, or number of um amount of traffic in the top and percentage of those that then convert to leads percentage of those that then convert to customer amount of money then spent with you per customer um in the first like uh each transaction and then number of transactions that they mm. spend with you and if you double each of those five things and you say, well, you know, to a business owner, like, so what's the impact on the revenue? If you double each of those areas and many will quickly kind of go, well, it's double, double, double. double. Is that 10? Because it's five times mm. two. Is that, does it make, does it increase your revenue 10 times? And the actual answer is it's 32 times. Mm. You double each of those five areas because it compounds. And it means that you end up with, you know, if you're on a uh, hundred thousand <laughs> revenue you're suddenly at 3.2 million by by achieving those things and it's I, amazing I love, what a yeah. small changes can do in the marketing in, the, in those marketing numbers indeed and of course it you know implies in mm. um in lots of different areas in terms of your productivity that you can mm. have with the business too so I, I you know that's why i really started that love of that and working with those businesses to to deliver those kind of results I did lots of, uh, you know, process improvement and transformation for businesses, including an HR and finance and all these different areas. Um, and so really, really enjoyed it. But uh, on a regular basis, would meet with um, a friend who started at the t- same time the company, we became friends there, uh, a guy called Paddy, who, um, yeah, after lots of chats over beers and so on, we concluded that actually our dream would be to start and build a software business. Um, and, uh, after, uh, yeah, after one such meeting, we said, let's, should we do it then? And, uh, I remember we said, well, we won't have any money, you know, we want to start a software business and, <laughs> and my co-founder, you know, my co-founder now co-founder Paddy, um, he was going to be doing the coding. Um, and I said, well, tell you what, I'll sell consulting work to give us the time and the money to then like build, build software in the meantime. And, and I'll do that until there's enough revenue coming through the software business and yes because so, if you're if you were charged out a, a thousand a day and that was being your being a salaried rate if you could charge out a thousand a day that's very different isn't it personally so for a business it's 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 more than enough to sustain two of you who can if you can get enough work 
exactly right and and you know by that point as well when i was leaving the consultancy i think i was probably charged out at more like two and a half maybe three thousand a day by the consultancy um and so i but whereas i was kind of like yeah if i can just get a thousand a day that'd be that'd be great and but then of course the terror of okay go on then (laughs) you know once paddy had said okay i believe you alexis let's go for it I then had to deliver on that uh, on that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll come to this question because I because I want to talk about this briefly because I worked for a very large organization, well, large, eighteen million turnover thing, large company, um, mail order company down in Essex, and I left that company and moved out to Scotland as I as I moved out of that business. And the one thing I noticed about it is the difference is when I phoned people up. Mm-hmm. I'm from so and so. Oh, lovely. Well, how can I help you? I my name is Paul Harvey. So <laughs> difference, you know, like the difference when you don't have a structure behind yeah. you, a big structure behind you. How did you deal with that? Yeah, so I, I think that's that's certainly true. And I think um, I don't know whether it helped or hindered that prior to doing uh, by going out on our own, like when we were at the consultancy, um, you know, when we were at PA, I hadn't had to do any cold prospecting. No, of course. I, or, or I'd been involved in the sales process, but I'd been, been involved in proposal writing and I'd been involved in essentially retaining existing clients. I hadn't done any just cold going out there. Um, and so maybe it was naivety or whatever, but I I figured I'll, I'll find a way. Um, and, uh, and I suppose actually what I did and, and indeed would encourage all business owners to do in the early stages is avoid cold wherever you can. Like the reality is that you should probably almost never be cold, um, at least in the purest sense, because there's always someone that knows someone that, you know, that that's linked to your target audience. And so that's what we did was starting off by saying well who do we know who have we worked with or has previously worked with us or knows of us or you know knows a person and so it was really reaching out to that network and just trying to get initially just trying to get some conversations to talk about what problems they were having and I think that was really smart um, not necessarily intentionally or or known at the time but that's you know again that's something I'd, I'd encourage others to do is avoid going in with hello i'm i'm here to sell you widgets it's instead it's just meeting up a very human thing be great to understand you know what you're up to what you're working on what are the current goals and challenges that you've got i mean there's a personal opinion i think the days of cold calling are absolutely dead but i mean i I, I know people say oh no it's worth no no i think they're absolutely dead because if my phone rings and i don't know who's on it i don't answer it yeah that's it and and I can only assume that the reason it still exists is because there's just this tiny percentage of people that are still falling for it or whatever. But I, I, I it, apart from the else, I can imagine that. I mean, I suspect this is already happening where they're struggling to get employees because I'm noticing a massive increase in the amount of automated dialers. And so yeah, so as a result, I I'd agree. Like build, building a business on cold contact is uh, is not the way to go. So you reached out. You had a network, and it sounds like it worked. It did. That's not to say it was easy or um, or unstressful. You know, it, it. I remember some distinct moments of us going for walks at the time I lived in Battersea. So going for walks around Battersea Park or um or whatever, just like kicking through the leaves, going like you know, how do, are we going to run out of money? Is the, you know, is this the wrong thing? 
Um, and then suddenly you'd get in, you'd get get back to the office and have a little of the I said the office that I mean literally our apartments. Um, and you check the email and go oh oh they've responded like you know let's say that we sent that over the course of the previous two weeks we had sent out fifty emails and left a load of voicemails and so on. And you're kind of thinking, well, no one's responding. And then you get back and look at your email and go, oh, someone has. And yeah, we can totally make that meeting. And then we have the meeting. Um, and I remember our, our first ma- our first major client that wasn't someone we kind of knew um, via the consulting work that we've been doing before. And we had agreed with PA for you know the, the clients that they were happy for us to continue working with and, and, and not and so on. So that was fine. But the first one that we got that felt more cold like we didn't know them before um we got basically someone said oh i should introduce you to this person you know they're they're kind of interested in the kind of stuff you're doing and so we reached out and after a lot of perseverance got a meeting and i remember the first few meetings we literally just sh- showed up and asked questions to understand their problems and they were quite surprised because they were like well are you going to pitch me then it's like nope like oh, i i don't even know that we've got the right answer for you but i suspect that we can put something together um, but yeah, first I want to make sure that I've really understood the problem and so on. And and I think they, I, I don't know whether they were um, bemused at that and therefore just interested to see what would happen. Um, but um, we got a follow up meeting in which we then took them through. So here's our understanding of the problem you've got. And they're going, yeah, absolutely. And as a result, this is what we're thinking for the solution. Is that a good fit? And 80% of it is yes, absolutely. And then a few changes. And then once we'd agreed, like, okay, so this is the problem you've got. This is how we could solve it. They go, yeah. And they go, okay, in which case we'll we'll come to you with how much that would be to do it. And that was our first ever project. You know, that we got when we got sign off on that. Um, I think that was probably like £30,000 or something. And that was a really big deal for us as in that moment. Like that changed things completely. Um, and then really the development of that was really a game of delivering the project, but then just making time on a regular basis to say, who else do we now know? And some of it was people that we worked with through that project. And again, rinse and repeat, having conversations, what are the challenges you've got as a result? How might we solve this? And if that was us delivering it, then here's a proposal. So just what repeating that over and made over. you stick with the plan to write software and not carry on being a management consultant yeah it's really funny because in retrospect i think that um uh, so uh, the reason that we always wanted to do the, the software was because i think a we just loved the idea of creating a software business but b we had this idea in our heads that we didn't want to create a business that was dependent on us and so again i was still in that mindset of it's the product. Like yeah. if I get the right product, then yeah. I can scale. Yeah. Whereas now I look back and I know many successful people who have created consulting businesses that they have scaled. It doesn't, it's not about the product. <laughs> it's the business model around it. It's how you set up your people and your processes to deliver it. And so even back then I was resistant to do a pro- a business where I felt like I was the product. And so I think it was that that really motivated us to create software businesses rather than just build the consulting business. Whereas now I would look back at that if I was coaching myself back then, I'd have said, no, you can totally scale this. Just get really specific about what the offering, the problem that you're looking to solve and the methodology and create your processes and your training around that, hire again. Well, you came that. from a company that did it anyway. I mean, it would have been no no sweat for you to actually just start employing people like yourself. And it's a it's a it's a story that didn't happen. So yeah. you you obviously went on to create a, a business which um supports which creates systems, isn't it now? 
Yeah, that's right. So um, we we create, I mean, we experimented with all sorts of different ideas for software businesses. Um, as a result, we've owned many domains that have never become <laughs> products and out there in the world. But we iterated lots and ended up uh, first with a software business, which is SpiderGap, which was, became a 360 degree feedback tool used uh, now by over 550 organizations around the world, including um, well-known companies like 3M and PwC and Pepsi and so on. Um, and then, uh, so we built built that and grew that to a globally remote team, uh, about, um, sort of, I think we're about 10 people when we then uh, started our next software business, which is Air Manual. And that's all about helping um, typically six-figure, seven-figure revenue businesses, but we do have some clients that are, um, uh, are either eight-figure or indeed much larger, um, but it's helping them to free up the time and reduce the stress in their business um, so that they can um, create space to make a bigger impact. And whether that's on themselves uh, and their own health and relationships and with their families or whether it's their team or whether it's just having a greater impact in the world. And that that passion you know, for, for doing that has come basically from my experience of getting stuck in the day to day and not being able to create those amazing changes, but also... When I was building the first, you know, when I was building Spider-Gat, Paddy and I had some really tough times. You know, the one things that they don't tell you with the software startup stories that you hear about and suddenly billionaire unicorns and so on, is that up front, there is so much cost in involved in building a software product and making it stable and, and removing the bugs and all this kind of stuff versus the revenue that you get over a much longer period of time. You know, on the flip, you know, versus say a consulting project where you get, in theory, kind of a lot of money um, for the time, but then you know, then they stop paying you once you've done done the work. Whereas with the software, it's almost like you're being paid, but trickled out over the next ten years. And so, up front, the first few years are really painful, and so you you know pour a lot of sweat and and uh, tears and so on into into building the business. But it, it nearly broke us a few times, um, both in terms of burnout and just feeling mentally exhausted, but also in terms of our relationships. Um, you know, I personally, I at one point nearly lost the love of my life um, because she was completely fed up with um, me. Like, like I was intolerable to live with whilst trying to scrappily try and build um, build the business. And so it wasn't until I found out through a friend that that's what she was planning on doing, um, that it meant that I was able to then change, fundamentally change everything about the way that we were operating. Um, the good thing is that it, it led to uh, one of our five core values being enjoy the journey. And so that's something that not only have we put in place for us as the business owners to make sure that we're um, uh, that we're living the way that we you know, want to live and that we're nurturing our relationships and our health, but also that we're making sure that that's the case for our team as well. But yeah, it, we nearly got to the point that we throw in, threw in the towel for the business when everything kind of crashed around us. And so what, was it, what was it, what was it, what was the secret? What was it that pulled you out of that? Because obviously, you, you know, you, 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 it's, it's all about saying, yeah, we, we did it. But what mm. was the, what was the tool that pulled you out of that kind of behavior? Because, you know, when you're in the thick of it, it's very difficult yeah. to see it, to, to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Agreed. Agreed. I think I think the fundamental um, the fundamental thing and there, there are a few aspects, but I think the thing that made the biggest difference was just was time blocking. It's the the ability to 
um, essentially decide, here's what I'm willing to tolerate. Here's how I want my time to work. Here's what my week should look like. And then, and then have the discipline to do that because, um, you know, and, and it's, you know, I've not always been perfect. I said, there's been times when I've slept, but I, I, whenever I've kind of got back into it, I've always thought like, hang on, if I'm feeling overwhelmed and if I'm feeling like I've not got time for exercise and spending time with my wife and kids and these, these most important things in the world to me kinds of things, then, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, if I'm let's say that I'm working till 7 p.m. and I'm thinking and I'm going you know I've got so much work I'm having to work till 7 the thought occurs why am I why am I not working till 10 or 11 or <laughs> 1 a.m. why am I sleeping at all and of course the answer is that because I'm I'm time blocking I'm deciding that no I'm I'm gonna sleep and that I'm gonna have a little bit of time before I sleep and so the answer really is then to go well, take that further why am I working past five and you go oh it's just a case of deciding not to. It's a case of not booking in a call past five. And so when you then do that, it suddenly becomes, it's weird. It, initially, it feels painful. And then you suddenly find that the coming weeks don't have the same level of stress. And the same goes for blocking in time to free up your time. You know, so many business owners that we work with now, they don't, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, I'd love to work with you, Alexis, but we're just so busy. It's like, well, here's the secret. That's the one thing that all of our customers share <laughs> when they first start working with us. Like they're busy. That's why, you know, that's why they want to free up their time is because they're busy. But of course, if you can't free up the time to free up your time, then you're stuffed. And so, um, and the nice thing is that we're able to share case studies where like two hours invested has got them two hours a week back within seven days. Um, and in fact, we've even got examples where three hours invested <clears throat> has got them 15 hours a week back after a couple of weeks and so i think um you know we're able to kind of show that but like often it's just getting out of that mindset right like it's because you just feel so stuck and overwhelmed and that's why i'm you know for us our, our mission is just around creating that space because it's as much about creating the time as it is creating that mental space that's free of stress so that you can have the impact like we can mm -hmm. give people the time and send them off with their their families but if they're still super stressed they're you know how they're going to show up they're not going to be present. They're going to, you know, seem distracted. They're going to be, you know, um, uh, quick to anger. Uh, they're going to be impatient and so on. Um, and so, you know, that's uh, and that and both for family, but actually for our teams as well. Like you, you know, you want to show up right with your teams and not be um, impatient with them too. So I think that's that's kind of where that came from for me was that experience of being impatient with my family with my team, you know, not having the time, feeling overwhelmed, feeling stressed and seeing that actually that wasn't going to get me anywhere. And of course, you had the process tool idea in your mind anyway. So so you're, you're creating something about processes as a tool. So if you couldn't apply it yourself, you, you would have been, <laughs> it, you know, you had to you had to find a way of applying it to yourself, really, didn't you? Yeah, exactly right. And so with with our you know with our business as we grew, we realised, hey, we need processes. And it was yeah. really funny because back when I was a process, essentially a process consultant, I was a management consultant, but specialised in processes. You know, we'd use tools like Visio and Casewise and so on. And I remember leaving the projects, thinking, how are those clients going to use that? Like, how are they going to update it? You know, we've laminated it and stuck it on a wall what are they going to do? And it's almost like, yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, they'll just hire us again in a couple of years. I yeah, that's the that's the plan. <laughs> um, and, and, and I really didn't like that, but I didn't have a better answer. No. 
Um, and so it wasn't really until I then started to hit the same problem in my own business that I started to think, oh my God, this is awful. Like, you know, I, I'm spending a weekend building a load of flowcharts in PowerPoint accompanied by some Word documents with some detail, chucking that all in a Google Drive, handing it over to my team. They're all confused and struggling to follow it. I'm frustrated because I've spent days on it and lost my weekend and yet I don't seem to get any time back and now I seem to be spending as much time fixing problems and doing it for them as if I'd just done it myself mm. and so I remember that kind of feeling was really the catalyst for us working out how to fix that problem in our own business um, which then led to us creating air manual as a process tool and <clears> a <throat> Um, and a methodology that means that actually you can you can do that and you can make sure that the team can find it easy to follow and use and that they can make updates quickly and that um, you can empower the team to you know, manage and continuously improve their own processes rather than it being something that business leaders constantly manage. Mm. It's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating story. Well, we'll come back a bit more to it. Let's explore a bit more about your your, your philosophy around it. So how do you define success? Yeah, so it's something that's changed a lot for me over over the years. And I think I've more recently started to conclude that there is no permanent success. I think that's one of the things that I see, you know, um, from business owners that I've, you know, that we work with, you know, in the past, frank, frankly, even my parents um, and, and my own experiences, there is no permanent success just around the corner. And I think that's the risk is that often, we look at it as if there is it's like well if i can just if i can just do get through this busy period um even if it means that i'm not going to exercise or i'm not going to spend time with my family and whatever if i can just get around the next corner then everything will be great and of course that's that's not the case it's not how it works you know you know yourself uh, the difference between a marathon and a sprint <laughs> requires very different training <laughs> and conditions. Um, and, you know, it's like success isn't even a marathon. It's like it's like a continual marathon <laughs> without a real finish line. It's just a series of milestones. And so um, I think it's I regard success now as uh, enjoy really enjoying the journey about setting milestones that matter and delivering an impact. And then doing that and, and enjoying little things along the way. Um, so I think that's that's for me is I feel successful when I'm adding, when I'm having an impact on um, mine, my family's, but, but also other people's lives. And it doesn't matter to me too much about whether I'm doing that for 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people or a million people. Mm. Um, it's just orders of magnitude as long as I'm And, and I'm guessing that, that the success change once you stabilise your business as such, once you, you know, because I think I think it's that Maslow's hierarchy of need thing in some level. You know, success at the beginning, success is about putting food on the table and, mm. and, and getting a next client. But once you've gone through all those processes, then you start to actually see success as something a bit different. And that's why that's the, the experience I've had of it. Because there's nothing worse than being, you know, scrabbling for the next client or scrabbling for something, because that will always look like failure if you're not doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, some of the businesses we work with, you know, I was, I was talking to a business owner only the other day who's, you know, they've gone from uh, 80, a team of 18 to 42 within 18 months, you know, incredible speed of growth that most businesses, business owners would look at and go, oh my God, I wish I had that. And then I asked, I just asked the question, and are you enjoying it? And the answer, no. No. And you go, the well, change, is, change is doing too fast. Yeah. And so it's like, so is that success? And it, 
and and so I think that's the tricky thing is that, well, it I is success right. in, success in the bank account, that's for sure. But the trouble is, the success has been so quick. There's been so much change. There's been no opportunity to appreciate the journey for starters. And yeah. it brings so many problems, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it brings you <laughs> new and bigger problems. And and I think that's that's why it's important to um, enjoy those little, you know, yeah. enjoy each milestone along the way, and make sure that you're building it in the in a way that is enjoyable. Like yeah. we, you know, it's why we created the de-stress your business podcast. Like because it that's the thing that we see often is that people have got in some cases really successful businesses that are stressful as hell. Like both for the business owner, but also for the team, and it's not there's fun. A lot to be said for fun. simplicity, you know. There's a lot to be said for it. Yeah. Well, and, and sometimes it's you know sometimes what you need is simplicity. Sometimes it's just taking more, you know, adding more structure to mm. make a simple business easier to run. Yeah. Um. But it's, yeah, it's. I think the mistake is thinking, oh well, when we get to the next big milestone, then we'll put the structure in. Like, oh, you know, we're we're only just getting to a million now. When we're 10 million, then we'll have the money and the space and the people to can you, then... Can you imagine the mess the place would be in if you go from exactly. 1 million to 10 million with no processes? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and But that's, you know, that's the same attitude that we get. Probably, probably find they're employing about 100 people more than they needed to get there, probably. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And, and therefore may not get there. And, you know, but it's, but it's the same mentality that we'll get with people who are maybe just themselves or two or three team members yeah, yeah. and they say oh well i can i can see how big businesses need structure <laughs> and, and of course this is exactly the kind of self-talk i had early with my businesses it's like oh i can see how big businesses mm-hmm. need structure but you know i don't need that now and of course the answer is you're right for 90 percent of your business but the problem is that 10 percent of your business is taking up all of your time and until you sort out that and make it simple and make it structured and hand it over to someone else you won't be able yeah. to grow the grow the business further, and I think yeah. that's the the mindset shift. The, for, the shocking uh, thing about everything in life is the Pareto principle, or something close to it, applies to absolutely everything. Every time, yeah. It, it not just not just your business; it applies to the, the the rooms in your house. It applies to the food that you eat on your plate. It applies to absolutely every single thing about it. There, there was always a split, an 80, an 80 20 or 90 10 90 split, 10 or some or, yeah. some split, something. Like it's just, and it's distressing when you think about it deeply but anyway let's not go there so a contribution what does contribution mean to you yeah so contribution for me is about um is is giving giving back and giving um is really just uh for me giving the the thing that i uh there are two areas in which i uh well three areas if include my family so the three areas in which I, i i would consider my contribution one is giving as much as I can into my family and, and in terms of educa- you know, education and encouraging learning and um, encouraging also a love of other people. You know, mm. it's a big, big thing that I do with, with the kids. And um, a nice example of this was um, uh, my daughter was doing a drawing and she was, uh, she'd got, got this little face thing and, uh, and put the hair around it. And then she was adding a fringe and my um, eight-year-old son just leaned over uh, to my six-year-old and went, oh, that's amazing. Like, that's uh, really, that, what a, how fantastic that you've done that. And um, I said, I just want, you know, I thought, here's an opportunity to teach. I said, um, Sasha, uh, I said, Sasha, it's my six-year-old. I said, um, do you know that what you did was amazing? And she went, no. And then it's like, okay, so she didn't know. And then I said, said to my son, Ethan, I said, you know, so 
you know, how do you think it made her feel when you said it was amazing? And he said, oh, I, I, I don't know. And she says, like, I felt happy. And it's like, okay, and how do you feel about her feeling happy at you saying that that was amazing? And he says, I feel happy. And it's like, isn't that lovely? Like teaching that, teaching that even a kind word, even recognizing what someone else does can make them happy, which in turn makes you happy. And it was interesting later that day, or like within 20 minutes later, he said, oh, the lips aren't very good. <laughs> and I saw her reaction. And so I thought, right, I'm checking this back in. It's like, okay, you said that. How did that make you feel? Sad. Okay, how does it make you feel to know that you made you feel sad? Sad. It's like, oh, okay, that's an interesting loop. And so I think there's one aspect of contribution, which is actually just being out in the world and appreciating <clears> what people are doing and um uh and, and sharing that kind of just love and appreciation with people because happiness is rel is so easily created sometimes that I think that we don't realize it. We think that happiness is this elusive thing that's really hard to get. And yet often there are little things that do it. So I think that's one aspect. I think another is obviously what we do with the business, the, the contribution that we have um, for business owners, where we are genuinely freeing up their evenings, freeing up their weekends, allowing them to be a better parent, be uh, be able to look after themselves and, and their families, being able to look after their teams and uh, achieve great things for their people. I, I love that that's way one way in which you contribute. And then just more generally in terms of charity and being involved with that. I, I, in the past, it's not something that I have particularly sought out. I partly because I always kind of believed in adding value through building businesses that deliver value. Mm. But I love the fact that I have many wonderful people around me that that are able to share causes with me that absolutely strike a that chime with me. And as a result, I end up quickly um, agreeing that I'll either do things or give money uh, to uh, to support those causes. Um, but I'd say it's uh, the the thing that I um, when I'm doing that, I find the most rewarding is the more involved I am. And um, you know, the more that you can get that opportunity to add direct value is, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely love being able to then kind of, kind of contribute in that way. So that's how I Here's the, the one side of contribution I always like to ask people about. Is how do you contribute to yourself? Interesting <clears throat> question. I think one, uh, pro probably th m um, most of my contribution to myself would be uh, through personal development like I I think it's you know I mentioned that back at university and school I loved learning and yet wasn't really working on mindset and 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 me and it's only really through events and coaching and and things like that that I really kind of tapped into you know what are the what are the ways in which I sabotage myself what are the ways in which I um, beat myself up or what are the ways in which I uh, hold back gratitude or, um, or 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 hold my back self back from looking after myself like those those things like working on that mindset have been really really powerful um, there's loads of great you know both techniques and models out there for for doing that that I've found really really useful um, but ultimately it's it, you know it's led to some big changes like for example I, I used to be te technically obese and didn't run and didn't exercise. And um, it was only really through some big mindset changes in terms of what I thought of myself as and my identity and shifting my identity from, I am fat, I've always been fat and I'll never be fit and I don't like running and can't run. And when I shifted that mindset to, I exercise every day. And then in later life, I'm an athlete um, that I was able to make some big changes. And as a result earlier this year, 
uh, ran a 20 mile race with 200 obstacles and loved it um which was a big shift for me given that a I'm tough not... mother yeah did that, was uh, that... it was rat race yeah rat... Rat oh the rat race oh well yeah, yeah, yeah. La- la- last last one ever sadly um but um but yeah i it was rescheduled twice which you'll know from your marathon training like what that can do for you for you when you've you've trained up you're all ready and then covid means it gets moved a year and then you're like okay now i'm just gonna keep up that training for a year <laughs> and then again so it's pretty it's pretty tough doing that but probably quite good for me uh, in many ways um but um but yeah fine finally did it um and so that was that kind of closed a, a loop on a, a big journal on a journey on my own sort of personal um fitness and actually men- mental wellness there as well well i have to say i wouldn't have known you were ever overweight looking at you for the benefit of my audience he looks like a very very fit man so so it's like i would have never known so well that's that's very very kind i did have um a client at uh one of my clients at uh sony um he knew he, he was uh i was at a dinner with um with a leadership team there and uh he happened to know me probably one of the longest of anyone there and um he was you know it somehow the you know weight loss came up and um and he he said hang on let me show you and he got up a photo of you know some event or piece of work i've done with him like five years before and he's like look it looks like this guy ate alexis <laughs> <laughs> well it's nice to see that progression isn't it and you know you'll and it'll benefit you for your entire life that's the most important thing about it isn't it really yeah, absolutely. So moving us on, and I'm really enjoying this conversation, and we're going down some interesting rabbit holes, but we do need to move on. Yeah. So what would be the one question that you would either like people to ask of themselves or ask you? Yeah, so that I'd say the, the big question is, how can I, uh, or, or where can I be spending my time to make more of an impact? Mm. I think if you ask that question of yourself, I think that that is a big one because it it forces you to think about the real why and it will forces you to think about how you allocate one of your most um, valuable resources, which is your time, your focus, your energy. And so, um, and I really like that as a question because when I talk to business owners about that question and where can they allocate their time, um, firstly, I see the lights go on. I, I see them talk about here's the big thing that I'm really excited about. This is what I want to do, um, which often uh, is followed by the um, the sabotaging thought in their head, which is, oh, but I'm too busy. And fortunately, I can normally jump in there and go, ah, but you don't have to be. <laughs> funny, <laughs> you should me- normally... funny you should mention that. I yeah. might have something to help you. <laughs> exactly. And that, that's when I can normally talk about how at Air Manual we can help them you know, document their processes and uh, and help them free up their time and put in the structure. And so, and for the benefit of my audience, give us a give us the pitch on Air Manual. What does it do, and who is it for, and you know, and how how can they get to use it? Or what, what's the story behind that bit? Sure. So, Air Manual is uh, an online software tool for documenting processes and onboarding <clears> as <throat> simple interactive checklists that your team and or you know whether they're employed or not. Uh, with the freelancers etc can find really easy to follow and use but also to make changes to and continuously improve 
And what that means for you as a business leader is it allows you to free up your time. It allows you to stop repeated mistakes. It allows you to get team members onboarded and delivering value and up to speed so much faster. Like we've found eight times faster, 78% less effort. We've found that with three hours of time spent with one of our consultants, we can save business leaders 15 hours per week going forwards. Like you can achieve these incredible results if you just block a little bit of time on a weekly basis to, to, to work on the business rather than in it. You can achieve these amazing results and ultimately create more space to create more impact, whether it's for themselves, their families, their teams or the world. And as as we said earlier on in the program, you know, in the, basically large companies get to be large companies because they have a system that everybody follows, and your system provides that kind of level of organisation for even the smallest of business. So it's brilliant that you can actually do that. Yeah, it's fantastic, and uh, it's funny that I've kind of gone full circle on my my experience and back to consulting, except no longer do the processes get laminated and stuck on a wall and never improved. Instead, we're supporting businesses and continuously improving what they well, do. Well, it's just the technology has become more dynamic, which is all, the, which is what it's supposed to do. Yeah, indeed. And how would people find you, get in touch with you? Are you on socials and what's all the links and that sort of them? Yeah, absolutely. So people can follow me on social media. I'm particularly on LinkedIn uh, a lot. I do uh, sort of daily lives and, and all sorts of things. So Alexis Kingsbury on social media. Um, but also I'd recommend that they go to airmanual.co uh, and click on resources where you'll find loads of resources that we provide on this kind of stuff. We've got uh, ebooks, we've got webinars and, and recordings. We've got um, uh, we've got podcasts uh, on like how to remove the stress out of your business. You know, really good resources. We're very pragmatic, very step by step. So you can use that in your business to uh, to create structure that gives you freedom. Um, so there's some great resources in there. And also in particular, I recommend um, destressyourbusiness.com, which is where our, our podcast uh, sits. Uh, and also if you want to join me on a, an interactive webinar, meet me in person, uh, then go to www.emmanuel.co forward slash webinar to find out when the next one is. Well, fantastic. Well, all those links will be available at the website lifepassionandbusiness.com so people will find it there. Other than that, just check him out on LinkedIn because he's there and easy to find. Thank you so much. Anyway, look, our last question that we ask all of our guests, what's the meaning of life for you? Meaning of life for me is about identifying ways in which you can help others to be happy. And as I illustrated with the example before with my son and my daughter, when you make others to be happy and you see that, it makes you happy. And the less you spend thinking about what... Uh, your own happy what drives your own happiness the better the more you just help other people and make them happy it just comes it just shines back it's this really odd feedback loop uh that uh yeah that i absolutely love <laughs> and and ultimately i think gives me meaning that's perfect to me alexis kingsbury thank you so much for being here with me today it's been such a joy to talk to you thank you yes you too paul thank you very much all the best and that was Life, Passion and Business with Paul Harvey and my guest, Alexis Kingsbury. If you'd like to catch up with Alexis, you can find him on LinkedIn, on Twitter and on Facebook. You also find him on Air, you also find details of, at airmanual.co and SpiderGap you would find at spidergap.com. And all of those links will be available at the website lifepassionandbusiness.com. Hopefully you have been following this podcast for a while and have explored the five questions for yourself. But if not, what's stopping you? 
You know, after hundreds of interviews, I can say with a hand on my heart that having answers to the questions about our passion, a picture of success, an awareness of contribution, thoughts around the one question and a sense of what it all means, that is the path to a good life. Now look, you don't need me to tell you that our world is changing faster than at any other time, certainly any time that I can remember. And we must be sure to know who we are and what we want out of this journey because we will not get it unless we choose it. So please give it some thought because, you know, your future depends on it. And if you'd like some help with that process, do check out the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com where you will find the five questions, ebook and worksheets. Now this stuff is packed with exercises to help you on the journey towards self-discovery and it's at the amazing price of just $12.99. So do check that out at the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com. Now finally, has this podcast been useful to you? If so, please consider giving us a five-star review on the app of your choosing and, of course, sharing it with a friend because that's how people like yourself find good podcasts. And that's it from me until Sunday. As always, thank you so much for being here with me on this journey. I so appreciate your time and attention. I'll catch you next time. All the best.